But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors, and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrom Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional, and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrom Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrom Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrom.com today. Hey, welcome back to episode 29 of the REACH podcast. In today's show, I'm chatting to Erica Mantel, who is a current med student entering her third year, or in her third year, I should say, at Ohio State. Um, she's a med student finishing up her rotations there. Uh, Erica was diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia in her senior year of college. So today was just kind of a chat about everything that she went through as a 22-year-old being diagnosed with this cancer and going through you know, a pretty grueling treatment, one of the one of the most extensive that I've heard of, um, coming out the other end, applying to med school right after treatment and then getting into med school and where she's at now. So it was a really powerful story, um, really insightful story into, you know, some of the, again, the, the dark side of, of treatment and the psychological impact of treatment, but also just kind of how she managed to take some positives out of it and, and kind of change her perspective on life as a result of treatment as well. So again, it was a really cool chat. I can't thank Erica enough for, for her honesty in, in sharing her story, and I think a lot of people will take uh, a great deal from this. So I'll get straight to the episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Probably Monday evening is the worst time to set up an interview <laughs> directly after work. So what time did you get in today at? Uh, I got in at like 7 this morning. 12 hours later, after a long hard day, yeah. come and talk to me for an hour. Um, so as I said, you know, I really loved hearing about your story and i think it's unique for for a couple of different reasons um but i'm not going to tell it for you so why don't we just start with with who you are what you're doing right now and then we'll backtrack into sure so i'm erica mantel i'm a third year medical student at ohio state um currently in my clinical rotations I've done my surgery and OB-GYN and labor and delivery, and now I'm into the internal medicine and neurology and psychiatry. So how many have you got left? I have, after this, I'll have the family medicine and pediatric rotations to go. <laughs> it's get, yeah, it gets getting there about halfway done now. So It's always interesting to see uh, the passion combined with exhaustion. <laughs> people exactly. towards the end of their residency. Third year is great because we're finally, you know, on the hospital wards and in clinical care, but it's also the most exhausting because yeah. you can't just study from your couch anymore. You're on your feet all day. So, how is that with with your own kind of 
balance and exercise and all that type of stuff during it's really took taken a hit um i used to like run every single day in undergrad and before i got sick and after everything with with my cancer i've been trying to keep with it at least like several times a week but then i got to a point in the beginning of my rotations where i literally was like sleep is more important than anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I actually had to start a I started a cancer to 5k program to keep me motivated right now very cool so that makes me run at least twice a week so I'm doing better so you had to you had to start a fitness program just to get yourself to get myself, and I was so self-motivated before but now I have to like have other people yeah. to keep me accountable I never used to have that but we, we talk about that all the, I mean we're at least you're studying medicine we study exercise and we can't even stay fit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we talk about you're only really going to make any sort of improvements in the off season in over Christmas break or over a summer break where you have a little bit more flexibility. Because mm-hmm. um, I was like, you know, I hate doing a desk job. I'll go and study exercise science. And I was sitting on a computer all day. You <laughs> right. know what I, mean? I so. know you can be as passionate as you want about it, but the time is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So let's go back to, to your story and, and, you are a senior in college when all this goes down? Yeah, yep. I was a senior at Ohio State. I was studying biology. I had already applied to medical school. Um, it, actually, yes, I had. I was waiting on interviews when I started to have my symptoms for the first time. So it was November of 2013 when I started to notice tender spots in my body, like on my uh, collarbones and on the back of my head and um, I really didn't know what to make of that. Um, And then I developed some kind of TMJ, like jaw pain. So I had this weird group of symptoms, so I went to my doctor and he was like, "Mm, this is kind of odd. And he gave me some steroids to see if it would knock it out, and it did. So I totally just took the steroids for a couple weeks and then stopped them early, like like a non-compliant patient, thinking that was fine. But then a couple weeks after that, the weird pain started to come back. Um, they were very minor at first and really hard to explain, like pulsating feelings in my back and around my hips. Um, but I started seeking out more medical care because of that. So your season was in the fall? It was. So yeah, I had cross country going on. I was the president of the running club here at Ohio State. So, um, actually the first race that I ran, um, that senior year, I didn't feel like myself at all. I kind of burnt out after the first mile, which usually it's at least the second mile yeah. when, before you're really feeling it. And it just wasn't like me at all. And I could kind of taste the metal in my mouth, for, like when you're totally gassed, like way too early in the race. So that was the first, I guess, sign that something was going weird, but I didn't attribute that to cancer, of course. Yeah. I thought I was anemic or something, and I, I kind of was, so started taking some iron, but then I started having other weird aches and pains in my hips, and I was pretty much out the rest of my senior cross-country season because wow. of that weird stuff. Whether it's related to cancer or not, I'm not sure, Yeah. but I can't help but think that something was already starting to go wrong. And it wasn't something where, where you know, at least when you break your foot, they say, okay, you're out for eight weeks. This was kind of a day-by-day, week-by-week thing where you're like, maybe I'm back next week. Exactly. Exactly. I even had like an MRI of my hip because I was having a weird ache there and nothing was there. So 
a bunch of just strange conglomeration yeah. of things were happening and I wasn't able to get back out there and run like I was before I was kind of limping around and I tried to run. That's so then tough. I was like, it was really hard, but I, I cr- track is what's really at the, like in my heart. Right. And so I was like, at least I have my senior track season. It's going to be great. I'll be fine by then. So cross country is fall and track is spring. Track is spring. So this had started in the fall and then how, how about the Christmas break then between it when you're switching from cross country to track? Yeah, yeah so I, that's when I was on the steroids. So I felt awesome. <laughs> I ran like my best seven mile training run ever. Um, and, I, and that's why I stopped the steroids and I was like, I'm better, I'm good. And I was like really excited for track. Um, but it was, it was New Year's Eve when I was driving from home back to Columbus for the next semester when I started having more severe pain and symptoms. So, I mean, what were those pain and symptoms? So I was driving back in my car, and I remember feeling this odd, like, vibrating feeling around my hips and around my waist. And uh, you can't really explain that to anybody because it's just the weirdest thing. Yeah. And I was planning on going out that night with my boyfriend, Andrew, and I was like, well, this isn't going to stop me. I'm still going to go. I'm going to be fine. You know, I'll have a couple drinks, and it'll be great. Um, but actually throughout the night I started to have like these awful headaches in the back of my kind of in the back of my neck and then I was like I really need to go to the doctor again tomorrow so it was actually New Year's Eve when I I kind of went back to the doctor for the second time and how'd that go Uh, well not much happened they gave me some pain medication and they were like follow up with your primary care doctor and and the pain medication didn't help at all so it's got to be frustrating going through that with so much ambiguity and not not knowing. It really was. I I thought for sure, like, I, these symptoms were so profound to me. I thought for sure if I saw a doctor a, a couple times, they'd be able know, to figure yeah. out what it was. Um, so that's when I was referred to a rheumatologist, you know, the doctors of arthritis and autoimmune things that kind of figure out all that weird stuff. But even going there for you know weeks on end throughout January, they couldn't really figure out what, what it was. Okay, so then what's the next step? You start track season? So track season, uh, we started with indoor track. Um, at this point, I was having a pain in my foot now, and I was wearing a boot because I kind of begged my doctor for it. I was like, it really hurts. I'm like limping around. I can't explain it. I don't know what's going on. Can I just wear a boot? I feel like that would help. And he was like, Sure. <laughs> so I was limping around in a boot. Um, I was going to the French field house, timing my my um, teammates. I kind of took on the coach role at this point because I wasn't able to train myself. So I was just trying to coach everybody else as, you know, they're the president and um, kind of the women's coach of the team. So I was just on the sidelines, like with time and everybody. I would bring my my laptop and make Excel sheets of everybody's splits. They didn't even care what their splits were, but I something <laughs> for you, yeah. Something for me to do. How I mean, you know, I I've been injured a lot over the course of my college career. How frustrating is that, especially when you don't have a timeline or any sort of idea what's going on to just be sitting there and going, when is this? I'm watching all these doing what I love. It was, it was really, like, frustrating and depressing to see the time that I needed to be training just, like, slip away in front of me and watching my teammates go. And I would, I would try to be happy for them, but, you know, most of them weren't seniors, and I, it was my last season, and I was, just, I was just definitely disappointed. And I was like, well, 
it's just club running. (laughs) I tried to to downplay it, but I was really sad because I was never going to get the chance to compete again. Yeah. You know, and and it wasn't just club running because I actually brought the club to Division Three track meets. Um, That's where my my boyfriend yeah. competed for Otterbein, so I brought our team to the to their meets and That's cool. And it was really fun. But So you're at what point then you start to get referred to Ohio State? Yeah, so after at least a month of seeing a rheumatologist out of outside practice and them not really knowing, giving me different like having different tests done, I had a a MRI of my neck to see if I had any, you know, nerve things going on. I had a CAT scan of my brain to see if there was like anything going on there too, because my dad passed away of brain cancer when I was seven. So I was like, all the things were so unexplainable. I thought maybe it was like a central issue and, but nothing was there. Um, and you know, eventually she was putting me on different autoimmune medications that weren't working and and I started my symptoms started to get more severe so the pain got so bad that I went to the emergency department finally um and kind of what I would describe as a pain crisis kind of like sickle cell patients have okay and I don't know for sure what they feel like but I can only imagine that what I was experiencing was bone pain and I think that's kind of what they have too you know, we'll get to the point of the diagnosis. What is that like as a senior when you see everyone who is seniors enjoying their last semester, living up one last time, and you're going through tests? And you know, even I don't know if you, if you, how open you were about it to other people at the time, or were you kind of keeping it to yourself? How did all that go down? So I, I kind of felt like I never finished. Like I never had a good conclusion with Ohio State because of that. So I didn't even have it in my mind like, oh, this is my last semester at Ohio State. That was the last thing on my mind because I was too busy thinking about what was wrong with me. So, you know, it was coming to the end here and I didn't even give that a thought. And I, and you know, that's why I knew I wanted to stay in Columbus after everything happened because I was like not, my, I had unfinished business here. Po- yeah, get some closure. You know, I didn't have my yeah. last like hurrah or anything and every, yeah, no. So, um, and I, I definitely had to tell all my teammates about what was going on because they were like, well, why aren't you running? Like, why are you wearing a boot? Why don't you want to come on our spring break trip? And I said, I can't like, yeah. function. I have the itis. I said, because <laughs> the only thing they found in my labs that was weird was I had like inflammatory markers. So I was like, I have inflammation and itis means inflammation. So it's the yeah. itis. So that's what they said. That's what everybody knew I had. <laughs> then come to the point of the diagnosis and um, what was that like for you and how did it go down? Yeah, so I had gone to the emergency room multiple times and they would give me pain medication and send me home, tell me to follow up with rheumatology. And, you know, I got to the point, I remember going to anatomy lab and just having this pain in my hips when I was standing. It felt worse, but it didn't really get better when I sat and I just couldn't, couldn't explain it and I was just like suffering but sitting there trying to listen and learn you know in cadaver lab like trying to take notes and and I just my mind was not there something was so wrong with me so eventually we contacted a rheumatologist at Ohio State so this is when I couldn't get out of bed anymore I'd been to the emergency room multiple times Um, I kind of was just giving up on everything couldn't really function so my mom came down and she called this new doctor and she was like, listen, you got to help us now. Like, we have to figure this out because we're not getting anywhere. And Erica's not going to school anymore, pretty much. So 
Um, I went to this new appointment, met this new doctor, and she really, really, really listened. And I had written a log. I started keeping a symptom log in, like, January. So I had days and days of weird symptoms to show her. Um, And she was like, we're definitely going to get to the bottom of this. I went to the lab and had, like, 10 tubes of blood drawn right after I saw her, and then 10 a couple days later. And um, and then it was – by this time, it's March. I was at home by myself in my apartment. I had one other roommate. He wasn't home. And she called me, and she was like, "Um, so – we think you may have lymphoma. And I was like, okay. Because I was, in my mind, I'm like, first of all, I didn't even know what that really was. But I knew OMA sounded like cancer, like a tumor. And, um, but I was kind of happy at first because she thought I had something and I was going to have an answer, you know. And then she's like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. And then she's like, are you sure you're okay? And I was like, I don't know, because I was understanding from the way she was saying that, that this was not a thing to be okay about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it turns out I didn't have lymphoma, but she had figured out that I probably had cancer. And so she kind of explained to me, this is like a liquid tumor type thing, because I told her I didn't even know what that was. I'm on my computer. I'm sitting at my desk, like, Googling while she's talking to me. And she's like, I made you an appointment for Thursday at the James Cancer Hospital. And I was like, okay. And I was like, whoa. You know, like, my heart just kind of stopped. It's like taking that all in, but also super grateful that we're getting somewhere with this. At the same time, didn't really know how to respond. She was like, do you want me to call your mom for you? And I was like, yes, please do, because I knew she'd have more questions than I could even think of at the moment. So that was the call. Um, So that was a Monday. And the appointment was Thursday. And Wednesday, I had a physiology exam. (laughs) So I was, like, staying up all night studying, half studying and half on my computer, like, looking up the prognosis of different types of lymphoma. And I was on my chart looking at my lab results, like, oh, my LDH is 2,000. Like, what are the outcomes with patients with that? Wow. And I, like, found a research article about, like, bad outcomes with LDH over 500. And I was like, 500 is bad. I'm 2,000. (laughs) I'm definitely going to die. And here I was, like, convinced that I was going to die, you know, for those few days waiting for my appointment. So what what sort of clarification did you get at the appointment then? Yeah, so um, I went and had a CT scan on Wednesday by myself as I was studying for my exam. Showed up for my, actually, before I even went to my appointment, my mom came down on Wednesday night, and I had one last pain crisis. So that was the most desperate um, I've ever been, I would say, because we didn't know who to call because, you know, I had my appointment scheduled. None of the pain medications that anybody had given me were working, and I was just desperate. Yeah. I was literally laying there asking to die. Um, and I think it was really emotional for my mom to be experiencing that with me. Um, and she was trying to call doctors I'd already seen to figure out what to do. Eventually I was like, I can't just lay here. We have to go to the ED. And I walked up to register. Well, my mom wheeled me in the wheelchair up to registration. And I said, am I going to wait, um, in the waiting room until this passes or am I going to be seen? And they said, well, there's a wait. And I said, well, then I'm not going to pay $150 to sit here again and not, not be helped. So it was a really, really desperate time for me in relationship to the healthcare field and yeah. that I was so desperate and wasn't getting it. 
So I just went home and, and kind of suffered through the night with that, and it eventually passed, as, as every crisis did, and I went to my appointment. But, I mean, you're talking hours of pain? I'm talking, like, a couple hours. Yeah, like two hours, That's I would powerful. say, each time. And it, it was it was really something I'll never forget. Yeah. And I think it was probably the hardest of, all, of the whole process to go through. Um, wow. So, yeah. But then I finally went to my appointment on Thursday morning with my mom, and within the first half hour, they gave me enough pain medications to finally make me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> and I immediately had so much trust in them at the James. Um, the doctor, you know, they did some blood work, and she came in. She was a lymphoma doctor, Dr. Cami Maddox, who I just saw the other night at Light the Night, actually, and she remembered me, <laughs> surprisingly. Um, she came in, and she was like, well, you have a, a, a malignant-looking cell in your blood, but it doesn't look like lymphoma. We're going to do a bone marrow biopsy. So I got my biopsy, and I was admitted, and it was the next day that the that my new leukemia doctor came in the room and, and kind of sat me and my mom down and told me, you have acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Are the symptoms, um, is it that hard to find typically, or is it just a case of you were kind of going through different steps? So a lot of what I've heard from other patients is that they were feeling tired or they noticed some bruises, so they went to the doctor and they did some blood work and they're and their white blood cell count was really high, and their platelets were low, and they were immediately, like, diagnosed, yeah. you know, s- referred to the, to the James. Um, so that was the first leukemia doctor you'd seen? That was the first one I'd seen in four so, months. Yeah, I was about so. to say. Yeah. So your pain starts it in the fall, and you don't get that till right. March. Right. So I was really distraught about that and kind of looking for answers as to why it was so difficult for my case to be diagnosed. And because... Like I said, so many of the other people I had met just kind of had like minor symptoms and it was found. Yeah. Um, but in t- I recently had a rotation on the hematology service, which was really full circle for yeah, me because wow. one of the doctors that treated me inpatient was my, my preceptor on this service. Um, so I got to talk to some of those doctors and they actually said, you know, with acute leukemia, it, it really is acute. It really does come on suddenly. And so it may not have been there the entire time I was having those symptoms. It may have been some kind of like prodromal, I don't know what, going on. And then that kind of transformed to leukemia in those final, I don't know, the final month yeah. or so. So I don't really know. It's kind of a mystery to me still. Is it is it aggressive enough to where, um, being that it was so quick to catch it, then if, if it had gone unnoticed, it would have kept progressing? I think I think it would have been really bad <laughs> if it had kept going. To be honest, it's it's weird because it's a it's a blood cancer, so it doesn't metastasize like other cancers do. You don't use that term, so I'm not really sure exactly what would have ha- what what happens next. You just didn't want to find out. <laughs> I don't really want to find out, but I think it would have been bad just based on the fact that I was diagnosed on a Friday. On Saturday, they called in the on-call radio or interventional radiology team to put in my central line, and my chemotherapy started that night. So, wow, like, it was, it was within like 24 too. hours that they started me on chemo, and they said my bone marrow was 99% malignant cells at that point. What a whirlwind that is. Yeah. So I don't know what would have happened next, but. I mean, what what is that like for you then? You know, Friday you get diagnosed, and then they say we need you back in here. What was that? I'm sure it's kind of hard to recall, but like that feeling of, all right, now tomorrow we start chemo. So I never went back home after my first appointment. Really? Yeah. 
they kept me from the moment I walked into the James on that Thursday morning wow. until April. From March tw- March uh, 20th to April 20-something, I was there. So I never went back to my apartment. My family you came and moved all my stuff out. I lived there, yeah. They took away my razors and my contacts because of infection and bleeding risks. Yeah. And they were like, this is where you're going to be now. <laughs> it was really hard. A month away from graduation, too. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, was it just chemo, or, or what was your treatment course um, straight off the bat? So the plan was chemo for years. They were like, you're probably going to have chemo for a couple years. Uh, they for did years? For years. Mm-hmm. That was the original plan. Um, they looked at my genetics, and I didn't have the Philadelphia chromosome that would have made me more high risk and need a transplant. So they thought that they could just do this with chemo and not subject me to the risk of a bone marrow transplant. Um, however, about a week or so into my chemo, I had a bad reaction to one of my drugs, and then I started having seizures because I had a blood clot in my brain. So they immediately stopped that drug, and I couldn't complete the rest of my regimen. So at that point, you know, the plan kind of changed, and it wasn't just going to be chemo anymore. Anything else you want to share? (laughs) (laughs) My word. So okay, they uh, so they stopped the chemo, and then what was the what was the switch in plan? What did you do? So um, the plan was then. So I was continuing the other chemo, but since I couldn't follow the the evidence based guidelines of chemotherapy regimen they had to add on the transplant so they told me then i was going to need a bone marrow transplant the sooner the better so so what was the did you have multiple seizures was it one and what was that like so i have very limited memory from that time because kind of around the seizure there's a whole like postictal period where you're very confused and sleepy and even before the seizure you sometimes get sleepy and so I guess the clot was probably forming in my in my brain a little bit throughout the day. My mom noticed that I was really tired, and she mentioned it to my nurses. And I guess everybody was like, of course she's tired. She's getting chemotherapy, you know. Yeah. We'll keep an eye on her. It'll be fine. And that night, sure enough, I started having seizures. I guess they were tonic-clonic or grand mal generalized seizures. Um, and so, And then I was moved to the ICU. They did the CT scan, found the clot in my brain, moved me to the ICU, which I hated the ICU. Because I, I really liked the James because I had my room, I had it all decorated, you know, I had <laughs> yeah, all the memories in the beginning when things were great and I had pain all my pain meds. There, yeah. <laughs> but in the ICU, it was just totally different. Um, you know, they don't, they're not used to their patients showering or like getting up and walking around. They just kind of expect you to lay there. And at first, that's what I did. But after a while, I was ready to get up. But... Um, back to your question, I did have at least um, one or two more seizures in the ICU. I remember one of them because I was coming back up from a, a CAT scan, and I kind of had the aura that I was going to have one, so I kind of had, like, a feeling. It was really weird. I could, like, smell everything. and Like, everything was, was, like, a heightened sense of smell, and I, like, knew something weird was going to happen. And um, sure enough, I started having seizures then. I was like, I feel weird. And the transporters looked at me, and then they were like, oh, she's having a seizure now. But that's, like, all I remember from that. It's, like, kind of foggy. I've heard a lot of excruciating things about bone marrow transplants. Mm -hmm. Is that, or are they they true? Is it that miserable? You know, 
Yeah, it, it was bad. <laughs> but, like, it's not bad in the way people think about it. The thing is, like, the, the transplant itself is nothing. It's a blood transfusion. The hardest part is the regimen you have to go through to get there. So they have to completely get rid of your own immune system before they can give you somebody else's. Otherwise, your immune system reject will just kick it, out yeah. the other one. They'll just reject it. So um, they have to give you very like intense chemotherapy. Um, and I also had total body radiation. So they radiated the heck out of my brain and my ovaries and everything else which puts me at like increased risk of pretty much every cancer mm -hmm. I imagine. Yeah. Um, so that was very emotional because going through total body radiation, you're supposed to be wearing minimal clothes because they have to be able to see landmarks on your body to line up and make sure they're giving the exact dose the exact same way every time. And it was, I think it was like three to five days every morning, they would wake me up at like 6 a.m and take me down and I'd have to, and I was always a cold person and yeah. I'd have to like strip down to the minimum and, and lay there on this very like cold, hard table and hold this exact position. And they would line it up and tell me, oh, move a little bit, move like an inch that way, move your hip an inch this way. And until I was lined up. And I remember one day the, the nurses asked me if I had a request for Pandora because it's just like you're just hanging out there. All the business is happening behind the window. You're just in this open room trying to stay still. And I, I asked them to play Coldplay because I really love Coldplay. Um, and unfortunately, Coldplay has a lot of very emotional songs. <laughs> and so, you know, the scientist comes on and I'm like, why did I do this? This is like the most vulnerable emotional moment. So that was pretty hard. Um, and then, you know, the side effects from all the chemo and the nausea and the vomiting and the mouth sores. And then they gave me an anti-rejection drug that basically, it was actually taken from a rabbit. So it was like a really odd and expensive drug that basically was a rabbit's immune system attacking my T cells, a specific part of my immune system to make sure that I didn't have any left to reject the marrow. And that just completely put me over the edge. I was like, I like passed out and I was like vomiting and just like every orifice was just spewing. It was terrible. I mean, the, I'd, I'd imagine they've got to be pretty careful with, with just the environment you're in too. When you're at, everything is shot. You're yeah. at such a high risk of everything all sorts. Of, yeah. I had to wear a mask anywhere I went. Um, people who visited me sometimes, everybody had to wear a mask when they came in the room. My visitors had to sleep with a mask on which was, I can't imagine how that was, but. So how, how often was your chemo infusions and I'd imagine the radiation was every day then or? Yeah, so um, my first induction was like a month of chemo and then the seizures and everything. And then they sent me home. I came down weekly for chemo and I either had an infusion or I had that plus um, lumbar puncture, which put chemo into my CNS. So it would go in my spine and it would go up and cover my brain because the CNS is a, is a sanctuary site for, for leukemia, for cancer cells. So they always would check it. They would take some out and check it for cancer cells. And then regardless of whether there were or not, they would inject um, some chemotherapy while they were there. So I had that like weekly for a month when I was home. And then I came back in July for my transplant. I had about a week before the transplant for my chemo and radiation. And I had something pretty much every day. Yeah. So I did like four, I want to say like four days of radiation and then like four days of chemo or something like that straight. And then I think I probably had a couple of days to recover. 
And then I had the relief. How bad did you feel? You know, bad. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not something you can really describe. Um, it's, It's hard to really say what the worst point was from the chemo. It just makes you so fatigued. You just don't feel like yourself. Yeah. Like you don't really have any specific complaints except like nausea and vomiting and my mouth hurts, but you just don't feel like yourself. Mm-hmm. And so you're just kind of waiting there to feel better. It's the most, Wow. Just, I can't even explain it. So then you get the transfusion and what does, the other side of that looked like? Yeah, so um, my transplant was scheduled for July 16th. Um, Luckily, my doctor had found me a match from Germany. So a 28-year-old man offered to go under general anesthesia and have bone marrow taken out of his hip bones and flown immediately over to me. So my transplant was scheduled around his surgery. Um, which is technically not a surgery, but yeah. it's in the OR because you're under anesthesia. So I flew it over. Um, my nurse came in with my bag of marrow. just looked like darker red or brighter. I can't even remember specifically. Just slightly different than a regular blood transfusion. It was a lot. He donated a lot. They hung it, and there it was. You know, it was just like, like I said, just like a transfusion. And after that, you just wait. So you literally are just in the hospital Waiting for the your counts to come back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it takes like weeks. And every different kind of donation, so you can donate marrow or stem cells, everything has a different amount of time that it takes for them to come back. And so I knew that mine was going to take like at least a couple weeks to come back. So, of course, after two weeks, I'm like watching my <laughs> counts every day, like, did they go up yet? And I remember sitting down with my doctor, Dr. Benson, he would sit down and be like, what questions do you have? And I was like, what is that marrow doing right now? Like, it, you guys put it in my blood, like, two weeks ago. Like, <laughs> what's, what's happening? Yeah. What's it doing? He was like, oh, it's just taking a left turn at Timbuktu. Like, <laughs> we don't know. It's the strangest thing. So they were taking blood every day then? Yeah, they check, check my blood every day to see how my counts were, see if my white count, immune system was, like, proliferating again. And eventually it did. It started to, you know, it starts out really low. You suddenly have some white blood cells, and then the next day it doubles because it's such a little amount, you yeah. know. And it's fine. It was so exciting. I was going to say, I'm sure when it finally did start to push, like, we did it. Yes, exactly. Because it's, it's so terrifying. Because if it doesn't, like, work, yeah. then, then what? I don't know. So there was obviously a lot of uncertainty in that time. In that. Mm-hmm. So how long? So you said it, w- it meant to be two weeks. How long until it started to? Um, I would say, I think it was probably closer to three weeks. Right. But at that point, they're like, this is normal. You know, they're reassuring me that sometimes it takes a little bit longer and everything's going to be fine. And I trusted them 100%. Like, I probably would have gone insane if I didn't trust them through this process. So I totally did. I wasn't that worried. So then when they started to come up, what did, did you go back for more treatment? What's after that? Um, I had to stay in the hospital until my counts were high enough that I could protect myself from infection outside the hospital. At that point, I had to stay in Columbus for 100 days. So that's like the big thing. Before transplant, they have to educate you about your 100 days. Where you have to make sure you have some place to stay in Columbus near your doctors in case something goes terribly wrong in the first 100 days. So those are like the big, scary, risky time. So actually, my boyfriend, now my husband's family, lives in Hilliard, and they offered to have me stay for my 100 days. So I went over to their house, you know, my mom came with me and made sure, like, I was all situated and had, like, a tissue box and, like, hand sanitizer right there because, you know, of course, Andrew's family would have taken care of me just fine, but she wanted to make sure that I, you know, I was She had to be a mom. She had to do that, yeah. Um, 
And then I just, you know, kind of hung out on the couch for like ever. For a hundred days. <laughs> yeah, I started get going for walks. So in the hospital, one of my, my primary nurse, Kyle, was like, you got to walk nine laps a day. And the laps were like super small. It was just like a little round pod that we would walk around. And so I, I never um, was as weak during transplant as I was during my first chemo when I had the seizures and yeah. was totally stuck in bed. During transplant, I was able to keep s at least somewhat active and keep some of my muscles enough yeah. that I could like go upstairs. After my first hospital, I couldn't even go upstairs. <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> so, I mean, what was that hundred days then? Like your count, you have it on a calendar. <laughs> like oh yeah, oh yeah. So, I mean, I was happy that I was with Andrew. Um, you know, during undergrad and everything, I was always so busy studying. This is like a new found freedom obviously I didn't feel good but mm. I could read books so I started like reading books for fun and and like watching Netflix with Andrew and going out to eat with his family and it was like kind of a therapeutic time in my life as yeah. terrible as it also was that's interesting yeah yeah and like start walking more and more and think about like when am I going to be able to run in the beginning if I had tried running I literally would have fallen straight on my yeah, face because yeah. I was so weak but so it's because I, I hear that a lot from patient survivors and that their diagnosis changes some sort of their perspective on on life so you seem like you almost took a step back and go the bigger picture maybe it is fostering those relationships and kind of not worrying as much about the smaller stuff absolutely it was a it was definitely an opportunity of like i would say mindfulness and and my own you know well-being and enjoyment of life that i could like focus back on what i love about you know, just being around, I can, I never get bored in general. First of all, I'm super busy, but even when I'm not, I always find something to do, whether I'm on the computer, like reading things or, mm. and so I finally was able to just like go do whatever I wanted. Which That's is awesome. Within limits, within physical <laughs> limits. I could, in case like, any of you are treating physicians. Exactly. So there was a lot of things I could not do, but also. And you also interviewed for med school while you were did. during treatment, right? Yeah, so it was at, right after. So it was in October. So my transplant was in July. I went home in August. I stayed with Andrew's family until October. And it was around that time in October that I interviewed at Ohio State. So I was like barely did you uh, Did you come across anyone who treated you? Like, I want to go here because you. <laughs> you know, um, the doctor I mentioned, Dr. Benson, actually um, kind of vouched for me a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, I was able to say, you know, he gave me a little bit of inspiration to, to think about hematology and oncology. And I didn't meet anybody in my interview that I had seen because mm. it was mostly, well, I don't know. I, I actually did interview with an oncologist. I think they did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't anybody I had known. So, no, I, I felt pretty much still on my own. I felt like I was on the same part as all the other yeah. all the other healthy people surrounding me <laughs> did you feel prepared going into it or did you feel nervous how was i mean talk about perspective you're after getting through all this and you're kind of going back into an interview how how was that for you it was really nerve-wracking um i feel like i had a lot of what people call chemo brain going on yeah. and so it was really hard for me to kind of stay calm and i think I also had, um, I've always been slightly anxious, but I think after everything, I started to get like some more severe anxiety. 
Um, I don't know if it was directly related to everything I went through or if it kind of like just pushed it over the edge, but yeah. I definitely was nervous, like more than I had been before, but I felt really comfortable at Ohio State at least. Yeah. So my interview here was, I, w- I, w- I felt good, uh, but it, I did have, you know, some trouble, you know, getting my brain going and yeah. just like having an, a natural conversation with somebody. Did you still, I mean, talk about chemo brain in med school? Did you uh, did you experience a lot of that going through your studies, especially the first like kind of coursework intensive years? Mm-hmm. So luckily, it didn't really come out, and when I was just studying, because I could you know take the time I needed. I always knew that I, I was a little bit of a slower and more like meticulous studier than other people, but it came down to the time when I had to do an observed patient interview where I had to think on my feet. Right. That I really felt the stress of that, and it really exacerbated my anxiety. To the point where I finally went to the doctor and was like, I need help. Like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I'm kind of breaking down right now because, you know, the demand that was coming on a, um, basically on my mind was yeah. not something I was – and I don't know if it's just the chemo or also, you know, the seizures and the blood clot and the combination of it all has really, you know, it's gotta be, had an impact. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be frustrating. I mean, how valuable time is in those situations and, and those type of pressure situations where – even as if you feel like you know it and you just can't get there, that's got to be yeah. really frustrating. It is. I think the thing that really is the most difficult for me now is word finding issues. Is one of the things that really stands out to me. You know, I think I have probably some other things that I don't really know how to how to um, explain them. But that's one thing that I've learned about throughout medical school that I'm like, wait, I have that. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have yeah. that problem. <laughs> and I have been hanging out with some other survivors. Actually, have been connected with recently who are have some of the same similar <clears throat> um, complaints that I do, but but we don't talk about them because, you know, it's just, it's hard to, to complain after all of that, and it's hard to have excuses for, for things like that, you know, yeah. and I'm like, how do I know that, that that's what caused that, you know what I mean, so. Is that the biggest thing you're still struggling with, or do you have any sort of side effects that you could attribute to the treatment? Oh, yeah, that's definitely not my biggest issue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a little bit of graft-versus-host disease. Um, It's gynecological, so it has um, kind of impacted my sexual relationship with my husband. And also, I've gone through menopause from all the treatment. Um, So fertility is definitely an issue. Um, I kind of am not that hopeful for anything to happen, I guess, if something happens, it'll be a miracle, and but I generally have accepted that it probably won't happen. Um, but I'm st- still pursuing, you know, um, medical care to see if there's anything I can do. That's powerful. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. things like that. One of the other kind of questions I had about, uh, you know, you talk about getting total body radiation. Mm-hmm. Is the the risk of recurrence in the back of your mind at all in terms of? It, somehow down the line this may come back or, or another one may come at me yeah it, it's definitely always there um I feel you know knowing kind of having an intellect kind of intellectualizing everything is kind of a defense mechanism and knowing that my my um, lab work shows that my my immune system is now 100 percent donor and I don't know how like to the t true that is but yeah. I I've put a lot of faith in the fact that my immune system is not even there anymore. So those bad cells are completely gone now and the ones that were mutated are gone. And so that makes me feel really comfortable in the fact that it's not coming back. And I think for me, one of my 
almost even greater risk than it coming greater worries than it coming back is worry of some other cancer yeah you know the i think the greatest risk i'm at now is for skin cancer and so now i'm a little bit worried about that yeah Yeah, exactly so but i have some friends who like have nightmares about their cancer coming back and i'm fortunate enough to not have really had a lot of that i don't know if i'm just like naive or just like not allowing I think my brain to go there. Do you think your your kind of educational background in med school kind of allows you to, you know, obviously you go on the internet on, on WebMD or whatever and you say risk of, you know what I mean? It, it, as you said, you can kind of intellectualize and, and think through and say, you know, the risk is X, it is what it is. Do you think that kind of contributes to almost that peace of mind a little bit? I think it does. I think it does. And I know that kind of five years out is when they say that you're cured before that they won't use that word really but i think right now i'm like at three years i feel like that's pretty much close <laughs> enough. so i feel pretty comfortable so just like stopping the steroids early <laughs> exactly <laughs> well, close enough I'm i know i'm a terrible <laughs> patient <laughs> but yeah well it's great to see you doing so well and i mean talk about a bounce back you're a year and a half out from graduating as md yeah that's awesome yeah it's it's very full circle and crazy to go from patient to almost doctor. Yeah. So now being on the other end, do you kind of see, I mean, I'm sure everyone has frustrations as a patient with the healthcare system. Do you understand a little bit more on the other side now what, what you know, why it is the way it is and why, you know, it could be difficult to change kind of the bigger Absolutely. Picture? You know, when I, you know, after going through all that, I had a lot of kind of issues with the healthcare system and the way that I was treated. But looking back, I mean, if I had been my own doctor, I don't know that I would have done anything differently. It's kind of just the way it presented. It was, it's just, was a difficult thing. And, you know, the emergency room is not a catch-all for those kind of things. They weren't going to do those 20 tubes of blood work that night when I showed up in pain, you know what I mean? So it kind of brings about like a little bit of peace after it all because I definitely had some you know PTSD being around the emergency room and everything after yeah. that but now like after being around it for you know a couple of years and starting to understand like this is just the way it is and everybody did their best for me and so yeah um, and you also work if I read that right you work with uh, uh, cancer patient survivors now in kind of a mentorship role or an advising role and just kind of talking about your experience and yeah, so uh, I have I have some survivor friends that are kind of more of a peer um, friends, but also um, some of my nurse practitioners have connected me with newly diagnosed patients at the James, like young adults yeah. that kind of are not having any clue what they're getting into yeah. right now. They've just been told they have leukemia, and, and now what? And so I've met with a couple people and actually become friends with them and just kind of being there to say, you know, your life is probably going to go back to pretty close to normal, not totally normal for yeah. sure, but you're going to be walking, talking, doing the things you wanted to do, which I did not believe when I was going through yeah. treatment. Somebody had to come talk to me before I would believe that, like, somebody, uh, like a survivor had to come talk to me before I believed that this was going to go away. Yeah. Because, like, my body changed, you know, my feelings changed. Everything was not me. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I hope to do now is – to like see people who are probably not believing everything's going to go back to normal and just show them like you yeah. can. It's interesting hearing that because a lot of people say that if it comes from a patient or survivor, you almost do feel more of a comfort than even a doctor because it's that person's been through what I've been through as opposed to we can only relate 
so much as kind of healthy people um so to see even you as a survivor having quote-unquote more authority or more uh, uh they have more belief in you as a as a survivor as opposed to a physician is is powerful stuff and it reinforces the need for people to to share their experiences and share their stories you know it's true yeah that's definitely true do you have any sort of of advice or what when you're talking to these patients survivors about what they're about i mean it's such a sensitive age for you to get diagnosed and then to give up, as you said, a year of your life to treatment, going through so much ambig- ambiguity. There's people going through similar situations right now. What What is your advice to them and what do you, you know, what can you tell them? I would say, um, you know, I feel like in the beginning there's a lot of independence that you have to give up. Um, and I think just kind of being open to that and accepting that you're going to probably need some help from those around you is really important. Um, also just have your glass half full through this, you know, obviously this is not going to be a fun experience and sometimes you just need to, while being positive is great, sometimes you also have to just let yourself cry and, you know, talk to somebody about, yes, this sucks. This totally sucks. And accepting that and also, um, just trusting your doctors to get you through this in the best way possible. I think those are the most key things. And if you do have any free time from, you know, what what your life was before, try to think about, you know, the most um, enjoyable thing you can do to make this any amount better for you. That was probably one of the things that spoke to you most in that a lot of people tend to, they will go into that dark depressive uh, mood and they will just sit at home and, and lay in bed and, and yeah. who are we to say you should get up out of bed but to to hear you dive into different aspects that you'd probably given up for the last few years I think that's a really powerful statement too and that you, you have now been given a lot of free time you know mm-hmm. to unfortunate circumstances but if you can use that to explore different areas of interest and kind of bring back a lot of those things you've given up before is I think is really cool to hear it is. It, it's a terrible thing that gives you great opportunity, I, I would say. And, you know, as a survivor, you're, you're entering a community of very passionate people about, you know, cancer research and, and their experiences, and it's kind of a whole, a whole new world. Anything that we missed that we didn't talk about that you feel is an important part of your story to share? I know you had mentioned kind of my depressive symptoms. I didn't really touch on that much. In the hospital, um, it gets to be a very much just time-dependent experience. Yeah. You're just waiting, and it's it's very depressing, especially being you know an active person that has a lot going on in their life, being pulled out of it, as I know like a lot of young adults are, and even not young adults, just being pulled out of your routine is really hard and I think just kind of, um, you know, take some antidepressants. Yeah. There, you know what I mean? Yeah. Don't don't worry about the stigma. Don't pretend like you're not. If you are, there's just l- let them treat you. Let them take care of you because you're, you're not well. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? That's kind of something that I was just like, well, this doesn't mean I'm a depressed person. This doesn't mean I'm a different yeah. person because I call myself a, a very energetic and happy person yeah. generally. But at that time, I was a depressed person, and yeah. I was not myself, and I needed treatment for that, and that's okay. And did you feel, could you kind of stand back and watch yourself, like I'm not the person I was, or did it take you a while to kind of realize it, or how did that go in terms of how soon did the treatment, and, and as you said, the waiting game evolved as well? You know, I think 
in the time I knew I was probably depressed. I, I don't know if it's more looking back or more in the time, but, but I guess it was more looking back because at the time, you know, they mentioned give me antidepressants and I was like, really? Okay, whatever. Because I was so, at a point where I was at such a low level of functioning that I don't even know, I wasn't even really participating in my care, like yeah. thinking about how I felt. You know, I would just turn on the TV and watch whatever was the first thing that came on. I'm not even a TV watcher generally, but I didn't even have the care to change the channel to something that wasn't like kids' cartoons. So looking back, I'm like, that is a symptom of depression right there. And yeah, did you you kind of get to that point of almost apathy where you're like, I I don't care? I didn't care if I lived or died. Yeah, I totally didn't at one point. That's so powerful. And you were would have been 22, 23? I was 22 going through most of the treatment, yeah. So to, to see that, I mean, 22, you've got another 50-plus years of your life to consider or to not to not be concerned which way it goes is, is highlights how dark it can get at times, you know? Um, and I think it's powerful, as we said, to, to be able to talk about that openly. I think there's not enough emphasis on on the the psychological impact of treatment and like you said living in the hospital for a month then having treatment go wrong and then having to do a hundred days of of almost again it's just always this waiting thing where where you're just ready to move on with your life especially as you you want to go to med school you know let's get this out of the way so i'd imagine i mean you can't imagine how how difficult it was for you um what sort of role i mean obviously now you're you're married Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd imagine Andrew was a huge source of support and, and uh, how was that in, in going through all that? Mm-hmm. So support was everything to me going through all of that from my family to my friends, you know, running club, people back home, teammates from high school, everybody just kind of came together and and it was huge. You know, it was it was a source of hope for me really to know that all these people were looking out for me. I was like, how could I how could I possibly die when all these people are looking after me? You know what I mean? So many people are praying for me. And I think that having that support is is really really important. You know, I was working on the hematology service last week and we had a cancer patient who didn't really have a lot of visitors and one day I went to talk to her and I asked her how she was doing and she immediately started telling me like she was ready to die and she was done with everything and and I couldn't help but thinking if she had somebody at the bedside with her and supporting her that that yeah. she would not have been at that point or if she was if she had someone you know f- helping her fight yeah so because I definitely know I I've looked at my mom before and I was just like God, this is awful, you know, but she was always there like, we're going to do this. And that was so important. And and Andrew as well, you know, a a young person, you know, a college student finishing up, a track athlete. And I'm like, he's not going to stick around for my my bald, skinny, like weak, vomiting self. But he did. And that meant like everything to me. And and then when he proposed, there was obviously no other question. (laughs) But yes. (laughs) It must have been really powerful for your mom to to hear you mention those words and in, in that at this point I don't care you know and I'm you know Maz are always going to be Maz to yeah. I'm sure it was pretty emotional for her to go through as well and one seeing what you go through but then to get to a point where in that much pain or that much you know whatever to to be like go either way I don't care yeah I don't know how she managed the whole thing she definitely didn't come out unscathed she I mean she lost my dad to cancer when I was seven. My little brother was six months old at the time, so I know she went through a lot with that, and I know she had like some. She suffered from, you know, I'm sure some mental impact from that, and then going through this again, I know she just saw the whole thing over again, yeah. and she was probably thinking that it was the worst, you know. So, 
she definitely, I think, um, suffered from that afterwards. But but she's doing a lot better now. Good. I think she's kind of had had some help with that. Um, but yeah, I was. I don't. I can't even imagine. And you know, she blocks it out. I'll be like, Oh, mom, remember this doctor I had? And she's like, No, I don't remember it. I blocked all that out. Erica. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, I don't yeah. want to remember that. I don't want. She gets upset when I talk about it. I'm like, Oh, remember the time when this <laughs> happened in the hospital? And she's like. No, and I don't want to. <laughs> you know, it's like it's sad. <laughs> I mean, what a story! And as I said to you, I think a lot of people will take a lot of uh, a, a lot from this interview. I think it's to your ability to talk so openly about it and so candidly about it is huge, and and that's why, obviously, reading your story, that's why I reached out to you was the ability to do that. So um, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. I think it was it was great for me to chat to you, and uh, like I said, you're doing better now. Yeah. I wish you all the best in the future. Thank and uh, you so much. yeah, yeah, it was great to chat to you. It was an honor to be here. It was. <laughs> Thank you so much.